Hello, I'm Bryn Lucas and welcome to It's All About Me. And this week's me is racing driver, pundit, TV presenter and brother to a famous Spice Girl, Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill, thank you very much for being another one of my guests on the podcast. Ah, no worries. It's uh, it's good to be around. People will know you as a racing driver. They'll know you from ITV4's coverage of the British touring cars. They'll also know you because you have a famous sister. How do you most get recognised or what do you most regard yourself as? Oh, my word. You've hit me hard there, mate, straight away. <laughs> um, very interesting question. Um, there's one thing I don't see myself as, uh, and that's famous. I think the, the famous thing for me is is people that are household names and and people like my sister, like Mel, Melanie Season, maybe Elton John. Somebody like that is properly famous. Um, for me, I, to be fair, you know, you do get recognised a bit, but not massively. I think that a lot of people recognise me for the ITV for punditry stuff. I think for British touring cars, there's so many new fans in British touring cars now. I think that a lot of them kind of know I've raced, but they're not too sure. You know, because it was a good nearly 10 years ago and I wasn't a champion, so people can forget what you've done. So, yeah, I think it's more to do with the punditry stuff, really, and um, and just having a bit of a giggle um, on ITV4, which is nice. There's, there's worse things you could be recognised for, I suppose. You're known as, I think, by the fans, the viewers of the ITV4 coverage, as someone who's got quite a big personality. Do you know, Bryn, it's really weird, mate, how you're perceived by people, because I don't really know. People don't know me that well. I'm very intense, very intense when it comes to competition and things like that, which you wouldn't think because everyone just thinks I love a laugh. But I live in a bit of a bubble, really, where I just still see myself as one of those people that watched racing through a fence and was just mystified by what it was all about. So when I got my chance to race and things like that, I said to myself that, you know, if I ever did well, that I wouldn't change and I, I don't think I have and from speaking to other people and especially the ITV guys and a gentleman called Simon Parry who was the series editor who employed me he said to me that they were employing me because I was the link between touring cars and the general public mm. um, meaning that you know I was one of them which I think is a is a true statement really so I've always been true to myself I think that uh, you know if I have a bad day I get really annoyed and kick the next thing that you see like anyone else would do but I there's one thing I've I've never done, and that's shied away from how I feel. Um, and I think people like that in general. But at the end of the day, I don't do it for show. I, I just wear my heart on my sleeve. And I think anyone that's employed me in racing knows that they're going to get that, which can be an absolute plus, but it can also be an absolute nightmare for some people as well. <laughs> but uh, I've had some great times, and it's been excellent to uh, to be able to have a little cry um, if you do well, and and also get really annoyed and tell people exactly how you feel on live television if uh, if that's how you feel so i'm pretty privileged mate so tell us a bit about you where were you born who did you live with who did you grow up with i was born in a place where i live actually now called witness which is in the northwest between manchester and liverpool since i was five we we lived in a, a little uh, two-bed terrace house in in witness and that was with my sister at the time she's six years older than me so all I remember is, you know, there was me mum, me dad, uh, Armel, and it was just like any other family um, in the same street. Very, you know, modest. We had enough. You know, we had the odd holiday. We we got kind of what we deserved, uh, which was new clothes and new things now and again, second-hand Christmas presents, just what the family could afford. And, you know, I thought we were brought up really, really well. But it, it's a funny place because it's not really recognized for motorsport. It's a, it's a rugby league town. Um, and it's a very, very good uh, in its day rugby league town. It sounds like you have a real, a real love, a real affinity with the place. Yeah. I mean, I've always moved around the country with work, uh, usually the Midlands, but now I'm back in Widnes or, you know, I've lived in Chichester with my ex-girlfriend, you know, other places around the country, but I've always seemed to come back home because I am pretty much a home person who has his friends from school still around you know the next road and things oh right so real local connections then now you grew up with your mum and your dad and mel your sister your stepsister well this is the thing because you know on paper my sister is my half sister we've got the same mum our mum was married to to mel's dad before all this happened and my dad was actually married as well before he met my mum so i've got 
two uh, half brothers as well. So Mel's my half sister. I had two half brothers. One passed away, unfortunately. So there was a few of us, but they were loads older than me, you know, Bryn. I see. So could you share a love of sport or motorsport with them? They just weren't into anything motorsport. There was only me, my brother who passed Stuart. He, he was into his bike racing. None of that, motorbikes or anything, it just doesn't appeal to me. But my other brother was a paratrooper uh, and he works close protection now in Afghanistan. And then my sister likes singing. Did you spend much time with your brothers then? Obviously, you lived apart. My brothers, I didn't see massive amounts of it. It was only as we got older and we could drink. Um, but, you know, they'd have to have me tag along because they were like 60 years old and I was like 20, <laughs> quite a bit older than me. So I was thinking as you grow up, then you don't really have that close brother to brother relationship that some people have. No, exactly. And because we didn't live together, you know, I spent quite a bit of time with, with our Jad, who was para one. And our Stuart, I did spend a lot of time with him until he passed a few years ago. You know, our, our Jad's 50 this year. Um, and also, you know, our Stu would have been probably 53, 54. Uh, and I'm 40. So, you know, these guys had done a lot of growing up before I come on the scene. Oh, I see. It's quite an age gap, similar to me and my younger brothers, actually. So what about you and your sister? We're, we're, we're very close um, and we always have been although we've you know not seen eye to eye as well as kids we just used to beat each other up properly then you'd be like best friends when people talk to you about your upbringing in your life do you sometimes get a bit frustrated that you've got such a well-known sister so the conversation could go back to her um if you wanted the honest truth i think that my teenage years from like 95 onwards were very, very difficult, Um, you know, to the point where, you know, you hear the saying, money's not everything. My mum was a receptionist in and out of work, um, a lot of the time just not working because there wasn't any jobs going at the time, but my dad was a taxi driver. We didn't really have a lot, um, but we got by. But then to have Armel, who was making at the time a lot of money, to then have something completely different was was unbelievable but it was so difficult mate I mean you just didn't know who to trust you know I went through college getting an absolute ribbon getting a kick in fell out with a lot of people you know to the point where going into pubs it was jealousy really you know mm. going into pubs where people are calling your sister some of the worst names you've ever heard of and it was because uh, they just wanted a reaction from you there were a lot of the a lot of the scuffles I got into as a teenager were just because they because they wanted a reaction. And I look back at that, you know, and I, and I see it and I think I would have made fun of somebody like me because mm. it's just what I think people do as humans. Um, but at the same time, it was so difficult. I don't mind saying it to you now, mate. It, it caused me probably a lot of depression, um, probably in the mid-90s. I've got no um, dramas telling you. There were some dark days, mate, and I mean properly dark days to the point where you're just like, I just can't deal with this anymore. There was a group of lads in college who were just, you would not believe how horrible they were to me. Like, they were nasty. And I mean, they, they caused me to leave college because I was, I was studying A-levels to, to go to uni because I wanted to be in the traffic police. That's what I wanted to do for a living. And uh, they cut that short for being just bullying and being horrible, physical as well. At the same time, your sister's doing so well, it's just amazing to see. I never hold her responsible for me getting a, a ribbon or a hard time. People might listen in and think, Christ, you know, his sister's a millionaire, he's, he's racing. It, it doesn't matter. If, you, if you're sad about something and you feel like you're not being accepted, it's a difficult thing, mate, and you really have to dig deep to, to keep your head above water. And that's why I still speak to my four uh, really good friends from school because they're the only ones really that stuck by me. Um, and the rest of the people would, were just in for a, a killing while they could, to be fair. So yeah, it's a good question, mate. It was uh, they were dark days. Some of them, Jesus Christ, they were dark days. It's interesting to hear it because you never really hear these stories of how somebody who is related to someone who is famous for whatever reason, you know, for you, you have to then deal with jealousy of people that are roughly your age that are in the same school. And I'm guessing you were probably what early, very early teens when they were on like TVAM and things like that. When they were promoting Wannabe, I had just luckily finished my GCSEs and I never really told anybody about what was happening. But, you know, speaking to my sister, she was giving me all the tapes and I was listening to it going, this is absolute shit. Uh, <laughs> that will never do well. 
<laughs> you know, that's a story on its own. You wouldn't believe the hoops that my mum and my sister jumped through to get into that band. I remember my mum bringing the phone in from the living room onto the stairs to talk to one of the management to give my sister a chance. She's got really bad tonsillitis, my sister. She struggles with it quite a lot. And uh, my sister missed, I think, the first audition. But my mum, because my mum's a singer, you see, and my dad's a bass guitarist. That's how they met. And my mum really went at whoever it was and said, you've got to give my daughter a chance. And that's the kind of fighting spirit my mum has. She said, you've got to listen to my daughter, got to. There's no doubt you've got to give her a chance. And they did. And that's how she got in the band. So, you know, I knew this going forward and I knew how much it meant to the to the family and also my sister. So, you know, you pick up on all this stuff. And, um, and as you get to my age now, I mean, you're 40, you look back at the mid-90s and you think, Christ, I got through my GCSEs. Everything was going okay, and then you just get beaten by this this massive girl band on the scene. You feel like you know your day doesn't warm up because you're always in this big shadow, and that sounds like a jealous thing. And I'm really not jealous of my sister. It's just, I would never want to be as famous as her with the grief that she gets and other celebrities get. Yeah, yeah, it does sound tough to handle, particularly at the age that you were at. The, the mid '90s were crazy. I think that. The biggest thing that's affected me still now is I have quite a big trust issue, um, not with the general public. A lot of my relationships broke down because of me not trusting their what they were after or, you know, it was a bit to do with racing. They couldn't quite understand it, but it was usually because of, because of um, I was always like, why do I deserve this, this lovely person? And they must be just like after being associated with, with Melody C. It's tough to hear it because I don't think you think some would react in that way, but it makes perfect sense when you think about it. And jealousy can come in there, can't it? It can be included that jealousy, that they've got the opportunity and you're somewhat struggling because of it. It's pretty understandable, really. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I think that if racing hadn't have felt the way it did for me, because even after I finished racing for the first time. I had diabetes at the end of 2003 after a really good year at Vauxhall with British Touring Cars. I think that even if I'd have had that and never gone back racing, and I think that if I'd have started racing and never got anywhere and was absolutely terrible, I think I would have been very, very, very depressed. I really do. So it became a sort of outlet. How did it help? Racing probably helped me massively because... It gave me a platform to try and have a go at something I ended up being okay at, but it just gave me a release. Someone said to me a while back when I stopped racing, they said, please tell me you'll never, you'll never quit completely because the one thing you've got in life is to act on your passion. And if you haven't got that, it's just, you're a sad existence. Mm. And it's very true. And, you know, even though I don't race a lot now, the commentary for me just keeps my passion alive. I've been so privileged for it. It's just, it goes without saying, mate, I'm just massively privileged for, for having the opportunity and, and also being okay at it. You know, if I couldn't live with myself, if I, if I was rubbish, um, I would have just been like, I'm a failure to the family. A lot of people in motorsport, a lot of racing drivers in motorsport, wanted to be a racing driver when they were five or six or seven. They went karting, they went to a race with their dad or whatever it happened to be but you said you wanted to do something slightly different yeah it wasn't on my radar racing cars wasn't on my radar it was a it was something i just watched on the telly and i was like that's cool isn't it um yeah and that's what i wanted to do probably from the age of i remember seeing the careers advice guy at my school at fairfield high school when i was about 14 or 15 and uh he was like what do you want to do and he's the one that told me to go and do a levels try get to uni and get accelerated promotion in the police to get to, to traffic police. And that is exactly what I wanted to do. And, I'd, and I went to do it. That's exactly where I went. And that's all it was about. I was fixated on being traffic police. And racing was just something I watched on the telly. And it was only when my sister asked me the question, I've got some money, because I was having such a bad time. I had to come out of witness. She took me abroad to the Spice Girls concerts. And she said, just come out. Mum's worried about you. Come and have a chat what do you want to do? I've got the money to do whatever you want to do. And I was like, I'd love to race British touring cars. And she went, find out how you do it and let's go and try and put something together. And that's where it, that's where it all started. <laughs> Speaking to the Spice Girls cook, whose brother raced in uh, World Endurance Championship. And that's, that's how it all started. Absolutely nuts. 
it's nice as well that you've got this following that people follow you on social media. They follow you at the British touring car. You know, people want to come up and shake your hand and people enjoy you. They might give you flack on social media, you know, that sort of thing. But that's because they identify with you. You've managed to come out of what sounds like a very dark place to a place where at least you can say people know me for me now, or they, they come up to me for me and not because of who I'm associated with. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you're absolutely bang on. I've learned how to cope with a, with a lot of the things that have gone with, um, you know, having Armel as, as my sister, which isn't, a, it's not a massive cross to bear, obviously, but mentally, it's how you deal with these things. And um, I must admit, I don't mind a bit of a laugh and a joke about it now, but I'm a different person to, to who I was back in the day. I remember being at a test media day, 2010 it was, and it was my second proper year back in British touring cars. And it was in a Honda Integra sponsored by uh, sunshine.co.uk. And a lot of people know me from that because we were the, the underdogs performing quite well. And uh, we, we come into the, the season off of the back of a decent 2009 in the same car. And this is how things used to upset me. <laughs> I'd, I'd seen a press release by a, uh, a touring car person. And the headline was Mel C's brother... Uh, looking forward to going into 2010. It was something like that. And honest to God, he come down the pit lane while I was in the middle of a media day test session. And I was weirdly, I was, I was P1. We just, we just stuck a good time in, which means nothing on a media day test day, but I know that we didn't have great tires on and the guys had put so much effort into the car. And it was, it was a kind of a middle finger to, to what this person had wrote. And it wasn't malicious, but it was just the fact that he just couldn't, not say it and it really offended me i seen him come down the pit lane and over the engine running on idle they were really noisy back then noisier than they are now being turbocharged tried to grab him the team had to separate me he come into the car i, I waved him over and he tried to grab him by his collar and pull him in the car because i just wanted to give him down the banks and i was shouting through my helmet at him and uh it was just a it was weird because i'm not an aggressive person but it just showed how much emotion was flying about at the time. And I think that, you know, your question about that uh, is summaried by me trying to lynch this fella and stick him in the cockpit right next to me. Um, because that's how, that's how much it used to wind me up. But if I didn't have the backup of, of doing okay in a, in a, in a series that is, is uh, quite well respected, I couldn't walk down the street, Bryn. I really couldn't, mate. Your racing career's had its ups and had its downs. Your first podium, I think it was uh, the release, the outpouring of emotion. I think it gives people, maybe not goosebumps, but it shows people why it is that racing drivers do what they do. Because without that outpouring of emotion, why would you bother? Yeah, that is... I'll tell you what was interesting. I did an interview with Colin Turkington, who wrapped up his fourth British touring car title. And um, I asked him some questions about how much it meant to him and this, that, and the other. And I've never seen somebody like Colin, who's an absolute professional, open up that well um, about how, how it is to, to win something like that and how much it meant to him. And what goes through a sportsman's head is just unbelievable. And I can't compare myself to Colin, even though we started at the same time. The commitment is just massive. And I think anybody that wins anything, the commitment has to be huge. And that goes for, goes for me as well. Um, that release of just just uh, astonishment and all that you've worked for is is just it can never be replaced and like you say i had a very special podium and i think that kind of like shown everybody what it was about for you it must have been some sort of two fingers up at the people that were just maybe not believing that you could do it yeah definitely um do you know what i will say though Bryn, about about a lot of people in in racing you know, my my uh, my first race when at Alton does does show every single person from every single team was on the pit wall that day when I won because they knew how much it meant to me. I think people just like people who are not. I don't think I've ever been arrogant um, because I'm just feel privileged, and that's why I love racing people. There's not many people I don't get on with in life in general, but in motorsport, pff, everybody I just you know I, I love I love it because we're all here for the same reason, and I think that's that's what counts. I think when you look at Top-level motorsport, British touring car, obviously counts in there, but you're looking at Formula One. Sometimes the younger drivers coming through, and you, you'll know this from a broadcast point of view, the younger drivers that have all had their 
their massive media training and uh, all they want to do is get their sponsors' names out first of all and say what a great car blah blah I've put together for them rather mm. than rather than speak from their heart they they're so well trained when it comes to media that unless you get them the moment they step out of that car you get the corporate answer don't you so it's it's nice to see somebody like you who just went sod it I'm doing what I want to do <laughs> yeah and I, I, yeah no that's fair you know that's fair I don't think I ever mentioned egg credit card once in my whole entire life even though I was they were paying for a, a lot of the racing I was doing um, in British touring cars but you know now I'm a bit older there's a couple of people I've helped out with media training and and it's because they're nervous and they think they have to say the right thing and for me you'll always be remembered for being a Jason Plato or you know a Rob Austin or somebody like that that people are on the edge of the seats waiting to hear what you're going to say just just be you as long as you're not offensive you're always going to be okay but yeah. um, but it is yeah some of the people man yeah I watch some of the interviews sometimes and I'm like oh my god this is horrendous we all love a panto villain that's the thing if there's no panto villain we can't boo so you need to have something you need to get people it doesn't matter how you inspire people as long as you do exactly no exactly that i want to see something that i can relate to that's what i'm that's what i want to do because i want to turn around and say yeah i'd have done that or i'd have said that or we go through life just trying to relate to something because we just want a bit of reassurance You and motorsport then, where did this, uh, this passion start? It's a really bizarre one for me because when I was five years old, my mum tells me this, she says everything was cars. It was just cars when I was a kid, like, like you've heard before. If there was a new mat in the house, it was, it was a car mat that you could put your cars around or whatever. My dad was a HGV driver, but... Um, he used to spanner his own cars a bit as well, you know, changing the oil, that kind of stuff, like like you could do back in the day without upsetting all the electronics in the cars. And I was intense. Like, any time my dad was going out to do something with the car, I had to be there. Um, my dad said to me, listen, there's a bit of a problem with the engine. Um, your uncle's going to come around who's a mechanic. And if you want to jump in with us and we'll go up the road, go warm it up, bring it back, and he can have a look at it. So I was like, yeah, no worries. So no seatbelts in the back of those cars um, in 1985 in this horrible Toyota Cressida. Um, so we went up the road and it's like a, a national speed limit road, like a country road. And uh, we're just driving, minding our own business. And next thing I remember is waking up in hospital and my dad's in intensive care. And um, what had happened was um, uh, a driver on the other side of the road and an old Vauxhall Cavalier had uh, <laughs> overtook someone on a blind bend, couldn't get back in, hit us head on. I don't remember any of this. And uh, as a five-year-old, I went through the front seats I think my ankles held me in, so my head bounced off the windscreen. My ankles held me in on the dashboard and bounced me into the passenger seat next to my dad. Mm. Um, and the only thing I actually do remember is I must have been in and out of consciousness, but coming round and my dad was out for the count, all his teeth were missing, um, and the, the the engine had come through, the, the bulkhead, and it was stuck on him, like the seat, the steering wheel was all in there. It was a head-on collision at you know probably 50 mile an hour each way. It was a massive accident, put us into a farmer's field, and they, they got me out of the car. A truck driver had stopped and they got me out of the car, put me in an ambulance and they, it took hours to cut my dad out. But it was time when there was no phones. So my mum started panicking because we'd not come back for a couple of hours. And my uncle has said, listen, I'll have to go because he'd been waiting for my dad to come back to fix the car. Anyway, my mum went up there with my sister and the next door neighbour and just went on the route that they thought they might have gone on. And the accident had gone. It had been cleared away, obviously. They never knew anything about it. My sister was going crazy from what my mum tells me. Um, and then the, the hospital rang and my dad was in intensive care and I was, I was in a bit of a mess. I, I don't know if anybody's ever seen it. I've got a massive scar, uh, especially now my forehead's so big because I'm going bald. But I've got a massive scar that goes through my eyebrow. I, I ended up in a right old pickle. I had to go to a child psychologist. I couldn't sleep. I was frightened of the dark. After that, after that big accident I had, I got a big payout when I, on my 18th birthday on New Year's Eve in my account. I think I got 40 grand or something like that. And that's how I bought my first race car. <laughs> I bought an MGF cup car <laughs> with this money that I'd got through having this accident with my dad. Poor dad didn't get hardly anything. His teeth fell out again the other week because his, his bridge that he got fitted, it broke. So my dad's, uh, my dad's sat there like an old granny at the minute with no teeth. And I'd, uh, I, <laughs> I had this money. Went and bought my first race car and started racing in, in 1999. Obviously, with wow. my sister's help, but that's how it all happened. And 
since the accident, my mum says I couldn't leave a car alone. She, she said, I don't know why you would want to have anything to do with cars, but my obsession with cars then took a turn and it was all about F1 and all about British touring cars on the telly. Just couldn't get enough of it. My dad's made a full recovery, by the way. So a pretty nasty car crash somehow got you into cars. What about the step into being interested in motorsport? It's just something I picked up off the television. I just couldn't get enough of it. And Murray Walker probably was somebody that got me into it because even if the racing wasn't exciting, I needed to see what was going on because I could hear this amazing voice talking me through mm. a story that I just needed to know about. Because you're the same age as me, so you'll grow up remembering the same thing. Murray Walker, British Touring Car, Murray Walker, Formula One. Any form of motorsport on the TV when we were growing up, it was Murray Walker, wasn't it? He was the voice of motorsport. Yeah, exactly. At Valley Cross as well. Mm. Um, you know, exactly that. He was the voice. It just was amazing. I could not wait for a Sunday. You asked my mum and dad, we had one telly in the house. They couldn't get the remote off me. If Murray Walker was on commentating on something, I needed to see it because I was just so excited because he was making me excited about it. So can you remember the first race you ever went to as a fan? Yeah. So first ever race I went to, well, I didn't know I was going. So I'd never been to a racetrack. We've got family in a place called Hurstpier Point, which is down in Sussex. My auntie lives down there, my dad's sister and the family. So we used to spend all of our holidays down there if we weren't going to Spain or whatever. And it um, must have been 1988, I think. We got in the car one day and everyone was being a bit weird. Where are we going? Oh, we're just going to a fair. Right, well, whatever. We ended up at Brands Hatch. I remember crying on the way in because they didn't tell me. And then I was like, where are we? And it just said, welcome to Brands Hatch across the thing. And I was like... This is the race circuit. Oh, my word. And do you know what I remember about it? I didn't know anything about racing at club level. It would have been uh, Formula Kent. Two CVs were racing. I'd love to know if anyone's in it that I, I know now. There was all sorts of weird and wonderful uh, racing. And I sat there on the bank at Druids all day, catching the best time as an eight-year-old. And my mum bought me a Ferrari Formula One T-shirt with Gerhard Berger on it. And I just remember thinking, this does not get any better. And I was so excited for that move that uh, somebody put on somebody else that only just come off. I was addicted then. Do you know what I remember most about that? The Castrol GTX smell or whatever the, the oil was that they used to use in the cars. They all smelt the same. Every race series just stunk of this same, this same oil that was being burnt. And my dad told me, he was like, oh, that's, uh, that's such and such Castrol. And still people to this day, say it when you're involved in the older cars you don't really smell them anymore because they're all so clean and uh, energy efficient luckily i've been to goodwood revival a few times i presented it once i did the live coverage there for goodwood revival and it is that smell i didn't grow up in the era of these vintage cars but i wish i had because they just are incredible oh exactly that you know i've competed in the revival twice i'm very fortunate and the members meeting as well and the smell of those cars that's what got me hooked into racing you know, seeing something live when you're at the side of the track and the noise and the smell, um, it's exactly like Goodwood. And that's how I remember 1988, sat on the bank at Druids uh, at, at Brands Hatch and never did I think I would, uh, I would be competing at those circuits as I got a bit older and sticking it around the outside of a Van Muller and stuff like that in touring cars at the very same corner. Just great. Absolutely mint. Your parents, they obviously knew you were into motorsport, but did they have any inkling that by doing this, it was going to hook you forever? Um, I think probably yes, because my mum and dad are very passionate about their music. And every time that I see my mum and dad, they only live half a mile up the road. My mum or my dad relate to the racing that I have something to do with. They relate it to singing or to being in the band because they still professionally sing. So they, they know what it means. They know what it is like to have a passion. I think that they know that they've had a massive part to play because they understand as well that you have to have a passion in life. I remember, this is heartbreak, not heartbreaking, but just great. This is what my parents are like. They saved, mate, for a year to take me to Silverstone to watch the F1. Oh, my God. Like, we were sat in the Woodcote stand. We stayed over in a little hotel in Oxford. And I just remember just being sat on the start line. I didn't know this because I didn't really see it on the television, but they did a green flag lap, the warm-up lap, didn't they? And I just remember thinking it was the start of the race because it was so loud I couldn't hear myself think. And 
I'd already been dangled the carrot by watching, you know, the racing in 1988, but to see these things going around the track, mate, and seeing Prost on pole, Hill second, and Hill taking the lead, and him coming past, I'll never forget it, coming past Woodcote on lap one in the lead, and you couldn't hear the engines for the cheering in the stands, and my mum and dad were cheering as well, and I think I remember my mum looking at me, so I think to answer your question, she knew exactly what I wanted to do, you know, in, in life. It was, it was just going to be something with cars. It didn't matter if it was racing. It was just going to be something in cars. So, yeah, <laughs> they knew what the score was. It sounds like you had a, a fairly modest upbringing with possessions. Didn't have a huge amount of money and you had one telly in the house. And it also sounds like your parents are very much focused on, on you guys. What were they like as parents? Um... Ooh. So my mum and dad, they would have been from a background where when they were growing up, it would have been very strict for them to the point where my mum and dad are very good people and they understand, you know, a lot that other parents don't understand. I think that that's come from the music business and going to loads of different places. They were quite strict with me and Armel. I know they were very strict with my sister. My dad was very strict and you couldn't get away with murder. It's not like today. I used to get a lot of groundings from stupid things. You know, my dad would tell me not to do something and I thought it'd be funny to do it. Grounded. Couldn't go out. My mum was a bit more relaxed. And I think as I grew older, she understood that I was actually a decent lad and I wouldn't go out looking for trouble. You know, she was pretty good to me. But I think it's different, bring, you know, bringing up a girl and bringing up a boy. As I got a bit older, I was kind of let off the leash a bit. And, you know, they'd go away on holiday. But when I was 16, they'd go away for a week or two and leave me with the house and know that I wouldn't do anything stupid. They were great times. It's nice that you can have these fond memories and look back and think, okay, my parents were always looking out for you. I can't remember in all my 40 years, myself having a crossword with my mum and dad. As in a crossword, I mean a stand-up blazing argument, you know, like about something I wanted to do or about something they didn't want me to do. I think that maybe once it was probably me just lashing out at them because what I probably haven't told you is when the Spice Girls were on a world tour, I felt very left out. But the reason I felt left out was because music's their thing. And mm. like like any parent, they, they went to all the concerts around the world and I was invited, so it's my problem really, but I, I, I was getting a bit of a beast in and I felt a bit lonely, mate. I had the house to myself when I was 17, 18. A nice house as well because my sister bought me, mum and dad, a, a nice house where I live. Looking back, you know, mate, I could have massively fell off the bandwagon. Like, I absolutely could have just gone in any direction because emotionally I was not feeling great. Um, you know, you just felt left out, forgotten about. But looking back... The reason I probably didn't go off on a tangent is because my mum and dad did everything they could to make me feel involved. Sounds like a, a complicated relationship with your upbringing then in terms of, you know, you had this supportive, loving family that saved up to get your tickets for things. But at the same time, you had to face the fact your sister was doing so well and was famous. You had to put up with a lot of the, the, the nastiness associated with that. It doesn't sound like it's an easy thing to, to come to terms with. Could I have made it easier? Yes. Could I have made it harder? Probably. So I think that it's defined who I am today, I think. And I'm not going to sit here and say it was the worst time in my life ever. And, oh, God, oh, everyone feels sorry for me. Do you know what? There was, a lot of, there was a lot of gates that were half open that I could have pushed open and really, you know, misused my, my sister's fame and, and, and done but. I never did that because I always wanted to be true to myself. And my dad always said to me, if you can lay straight in bed and you don't sleep with one eye open, mate, you've done a good job. Have you, I'm sure you have, but have you ever sat down with your sister and had a heart to heart about what it was like for both of you? I doubt it was a clean ride for her either. Oh, I know it wasn't, mate. And my problems that I'm saying now, they are like, they're, five percent of what she would have been put through i know things that would curdle the milk mate in your tea i just the stuff that that i've heard seen from the mid 90s just and even up to now just make you sick to your stomach mate with what my sisters had to deal with um to answer your question we had 
never spoken about it ever. And then she did an Insta live on her channel and asked me to do a Q&A with her for her fans. And in front of a million people from Chile, Paraguay, everywhere around the world, my sister's asking me these questions and she just was gobsmacked. She said, I cannot believe I didn't know this. You know, I've probably been a bit more honest with you because you're not my family, but some of the stuff I was telling her, she just couldn't get her breath, mate. And she texted me afterwards and she said, I never knew that. I'm so sorry. And I was like, there's nothing to be sorry about. You asked me the question. That's how it was. If I was a different person, it probably wouldn't have affected me like it did, but it did. We learn and we crack on and we go forward. So, so yeah, we have had the conversation to a point, mate, but we never did for all of those years, which is totally bizarre, isn't it? It's weird, isn't it? It's so complicated. It's weird that your sister's success brought you so much trouble when you were growing up. And yet, in because of her success, you managed to get some of the financial backing, perhaps, and some of the sponsors that enabled you to have the career that, you, that you've had. So without one, there wouldn't have been the other. And without your ability to do it, there wouldn't have been any of it. Yeah, I suppose so. And I remember I wasn't very good at defending myself, you know, back in the day. And I remember a guy called Matt Kelly, so funny. I met him for the first time in my first year. It was at Silverstone. I'd, you know, I'd never been I'd never been on a track there. I don't even think I'd done any testing. I went straight into like qualifying in this MGF Cup car. I went on the Grand Prix circuit and I remember the Silverstone thing coming up to get me. Um, and he was like, where are you going? And I went, I don't know. He said, you've gone through the cones at Beckett's Maggots. You're supposed to go on the National. I was like, I don't know, mate. So he guided me back and I come back and Matt Kelly was in the garage next to us who was the, the hot shoe in, in the MGF Cup. And he was like, mate, you are like the worst person I I know. And he was horrible to be Matt. He's a good mate of mine now. But in the driver's briefings, he used to just put a piece of A4 paper on one of the chairs just saying slow spice. <laughs> right. So that was my seat. You know, I laughed it off. But mentally, I was like, this is like going back to school again and I don't like it. And then the next round, everybody had put slow spice on every chair and waited for me to go in. And you know what? I look back and that was priceless because it broke the ice with the MGF Cup kids and the, and the lads. And I really cut my teeth that year with them lot. You mentioned that getting into motorsport was probably the, the thing that saved you. You got your car, you got your 40 grand payout when you were 17 years old, but that was all linked to a pretty nasty crash. So you bought your first racing car. How did you know you were going to be any good at it? I didn't. I, I, I didn't have a clue. Um, I wasn't arrogant enough to think that I would be average. I wasn't arrogant enough to think that I would win races. I remember going into my first ever race. It, it was weird. I went to something called the Jim Russell Racing School at Donington Park to get my license, but my sister paid for me to do a, a week-long international race driver course. So it's basically media training. Uh, you get to drive a little single seater, this, that, and the other. I was absolutely awful, and I mean awful. Um, I was in the I was in the gravel. I was down the crane of curves backwards. It was horrific, mate. I ended up in the gravel on like day three for the fourteenth time. They were all lapping me in the races. I ran my mum. I was staying at um, at Donington Park down the road. I ran my mum crying. Um, I was a 17-year-old lad crying on the phone to his mum. Don't want to do it anymore. Don't want to do it. It's not for me. Can't do it. I just I was trying to control something that I just couldn't control. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I did not have a clue what I was doing. And my mum was like, no, you'll be fine. Persevere with it. You know, you've just, you're new to it. You'll be absolutely fine. You cannot give up. That sticks in my head, that um, that actual situation. And any time I've had not a very nice day in motorsport, which believe me, I've had some very not very nice days, I always think back to that story. And tomorrow is another day or the next test session is another session. Touring cars was always the aim, but I did not have a clue where it was going to go. Just went, went with the wind, mate. <laughs> and you aimed pretty big then because touring car is the highest level you can get to when it comes to tin tops in this country and pretty much motorsport in this country, really, when you think about it. Because we have the Grand Prix, we have MotoGP comes into town, there's rallycross, rallying, all those sorts of things. But British touring car is where it's at. It's what everybody looks at. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when I first got that MGF Cup car, and ran with a team called Binkcliffe Sport. You know, I I was so bad, mate. I was so bad. And people used to ask me. I was finishing like 29th out of 20 cars. I was terrible. <laughs> I was like, honestly, I was laster than last. And I just started to chip away at it. But that first year was just horrendous, mate, because I was sponsored by OK Magazine. My sister got me hooked up with OK Magazine because we'd done like a 16-page um, interview of me and her in there. And 
Armel was like, don't give me the money, give it to Paul, pay for his racing. So I got like 80 grand to go racing. And um, any time I was in the wall, which was every test session and every race, I was in the Daily Mirror who hated the OK magazine owners and they just poked fun at me. And it was awful, mate, you know, absolutely awful. And even then, people used to ask me, what do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to race British touring cars. And it was a guy called Marvin Humphreys who I raced for for years with TechSpeed who actually picked me up the next year and he guided me all the way to touring cars after two years of MGF Cup racing from being sat on a couch doing nothing. So I knew where I wanted to go, but I really didn't think I'd be any good at it, mate. But I had no other choice, mate. I was being chased by a demon and the, and the demon had to be shown that I was capable of doing something. That's all I can say about it and how to relay it to somebody. I think you could look at it like this. You didn't have maybe the most glittering racing career. You won British touring car races and you got quite a lot of podiums though. So you were there on merit. I'll put it to you this way. When I was 15, I never thought I'd race a car. When I was maybe 19 and I was in my first year of racing cars, I never thought I would get on a podium. When I was 20 and I had my first podium, I never thought I'd win a race. <laughs> when I was 22 in my first British touring car season and I won at the second round at Alton Park, I thought I've got to stop now because that's all I ever wanted to do. I always wanted to win a British touring car race and I always wanted to be in the BRDC. And I'd done that by the time I was 22. <laughs> so, so I kind of was like, what are we going to do next? But obviously you, you, you push on and, you know, I think what's brilliant for me is that my racing career never cost my sister a lot of money because she only paid for a few seasons. And then I had sponsors of my own to cover the rest of it. You know, I was a professional. I was paid to, to race and I would get paid to cover the championship. I never thought there was anything going for me, mate, but I wake up every day with a smile on my face. And I think that's a nice thing to be able to say at 40 years of age when you've had a, a go at something you never thought you'd have a go at. It's great, mate. You have a touring car history. You've achieved more in touring car than most people in touring car. You know, let's have to lay that out there. If you think about the number of drivers that have come and gone in British touring car, you can say quite openly and honestly that you're up there. Yeah, do you know, it, that's, I suppose that's a long way to look at it. I started British touring cars in 2001. And even though I was off and on, I was racing up until 2013, off and on, but I'm still in some form in the championship now as, as a commentator or pundit and it's 2020. So I must be respected to get the job I've got at the minute, but at the same time, all these drivers that have come and gone, I'm still wanted, which is amazing. And I think that I had two race wins in British touring cars and it was one more than I ever wanted, Bryn. And I think that some of the podiums I had for the smaller teams like Tech Speed Motorsport with Sunshine sponsorship on the side of the car, they were my best days. It's, it's things like that that, uh, that makes me want to go racing is getting, that, is getting that result as an underdog. And that's all I ever wanted to do. I nearly finished third in the championship uh, behind Muller and Thompson in 2003. But it was just a, the last race of the season at Alton Park and Matt Neal just pipped me in his Honda. Matt Neal, Matt Neal, the triple champion, pipped me in his Honda, factory Honda. I mean, would I have said that when I was back in school? winding up the lads and the girls in class. No. So I'll take that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you can get that monkey off your back, really, to me. If you could go back in time right now and talk to your 13, 14-year-old self, what would you say to him? Um, probably keep your faith and also live off your passion. I think they're the two things I would always say. And whenever I can, unless someone's done something really not very nice to my family, I will forgive anybody. I think that's a decent trait to have. Any negative you get in life, and I use it now, any negative you get, you've just got to go around and just try and make it a positive, you know. And that's, I think that's how I've survived um, as long as I have. And I have a great career now. It wasn't for um, crying to my mum on the phone saying I didn't want to do it and she told me to grow up and crack on. I wouldn't be here, you know, with, with a decent lifestyle and uh, a, a, an amazing passion still for the sport that, that pays me well and I love. There's a lot of christenings, a lot of weddings and a lot of friends' birthday parties I've missed. And the lads and the girls I know will never mind me saying it was definitely 
something to sacrifice for for the for the beautiful career I think I've had because in my head it's been the best thing that uh, could have ever happened to me. So yeah, you know, if you have a passion and a dream, never give up on it. If you could pick one person as your biggest inspiration, who would it be? I've got one person was somebody that I watched in British touring cars and watched him win his first ever race and be the youngest touring car winner. And he's had such a say in my life since I joined British touring cars. And it'll be James Thompson, double British champion. The words of encouragement and do you know what I'll do, Bryn? I'll just sum this fella up. So he got Triple Eight to speak to me about going on board with them in the egg car to be Matt Neal's teammate in 2002 to hook up with him and Ivan Muller. And this is how this guy works. So you know what it's like. You don't get much time in free practices and things like that. I didn't know Brands Hatch GP. I'd never been there. Um, It was my first ever race there. And it was the first weekend of British Touring Cars 2002. He said, follow me out the pits. I'll show you the way around. And he gave up 30 minutes of his 40-minute session to let me follow him around. That day is when I was like, I like this fella. And even when he wasn't racing, and in 2011, I was on the front row of the grid with Plato in the Chevrolet Cruze at Rockingham. He'd come all the way over just to see me and give me some words of encouragement. He is like my brother. That guy is the biggest inspiration that anybody's ever had on me as a sportsman, as a person, um, and just as a lovely guy. So yeah, James Thompson. I've been asking all my guests on the podcast, what's been your lowest low? Uh, dead easy one this mate it was end of 2003 having a great year finishing fourth in the British Touring Car Championship not feeling very well long story short went to the doctors confirmed I had type 1 diabetes so I'm on needles for the rest of my life and then getting the call from Vauxhall that I wouldn't be able to race with them because I couldn't get a race license from the MSA. You you end up with six months red tape, so you just can't even apply for it. So that was my year over, and the momentum had all gone. I felt horrific, and probably felt horrific for about a month. And then as I started to come to terms with what I had, I looked into it. My mum and dad were just the most special people you could ever meet about this. They, They sorted my diet out and everything, and I was just on absolute top form six months later. So an absolute shift from being probably the most depressed and uh, lowest I've ever felt in my life to being, we can do this. And then just to quickly say, uh, Marion Barnaby from Porsche UK at the time was the only person who would give me a shot um, at racing a car with my new license after being diabetic in 2006. My first ever race back was with with, uh, Porsche UK in the guest car. And Marion took a big, big gamble because it was a bit of a funny one with diabetes and especially heat and cars and stuff. So shout out to Marion for being a lovely woman. It's weird, isn't it? That the, the lowest lows can be followed quite quickly with a moment you can look back on and be quite so upbeat about. So the opposite end of the spectrum then, maybe this is quite a simple question. The highest high you've had? Dead simple. It was my first ever win in British Touring Cars in 2002 after an absolutely horrific start to the year at Brands GP. Like I was saying about James helping me round. First race, I was thinking, yeah, we're in here. Last lap, I was in second place. It was going to be an egg, Sport 1-2. I had a left front blowout with clearways, went off, bang, into the barriers. Next race was a rolling start. Tim Harvey and me got contact in the barriers. I was really, really, really sad, trying to keep me, me head up. First race at Alton, <laughs> round two, gearbox blew up. I just remember nearly being as upset as I was in the gravel trap all them years ago. And then uh, lights went out for... Uh, for the for the next race at Alton, started fourth on the grid, and long story short, made my way up to first. Couple of retirements, made my first ever pit stops. I'd never got as far as a pit stop before uh, without the car breaking or something happening. And I just remember P one, L one on my lap board, and I just I felt like I was in a dream. I didn't understand what was going on, and the noise. Um, you know, them cars used to rev at eight and a half thousand revs and they were so loud. They're normally aspirated cars. I had the windows down a bit because I'm not very good with heat. And I went down to Knickerbrooker. I could hear everyone cheering and it was a blur, but I could pick faces out in the crowd. And it was just astonishment that this lad from, you know, 10 mile away up the road, whose sister's Mel C and he shouldn't really be on the grid really because he's only been racing a few years. He's leading the race. They couldn't believe it. And they were, they blew me up the hill at Clay Hill. And um, I just remember coming across the line and I couldn't, I nearly hit the pit wall because I was crying, couldn't see where I was going. Just the absolute 
it was just unbelievable. Uh, an unbelievable time. Marshall's jumping out the posts, waving at me. And that will never, ever, ever be replaced by anything I ever do in my life going forward, ever. That was the best thing in the world. And that is why I'll always be a happy, happy person. I love hearing these stories when people remember something that they've got such fond memories of because you can almost picture what they're telling you. But I imagine if you close your eyes, you can smell it, you can see it, you can taste it. It's still there. It's amazing. You're dead right, mate. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that everybody should have. Strive for your dreams and you'll have something that you can fondly look back on and tell uh, hopefully your grandkids. What does the future have in store for you? Oh, um, I don't know. I really don't know. I think this is one of my weaknesses, actually, that I, I, I kind of live on the seat of my pants. I never know what I'm going to do next. I'd like to, I'd like to think more commentating and, and more TV work. It's not something I've really told you, but I'm quite an anxious person. I struggle a bit with anxiety, so I don't like being on screen. And commentary, I just feel like it's, it's, it fits like a glove for me because no one's watching me. They're just listening to what I'm saying, so I, I'm not being judged on a TV screen. So I'd, I'd like to say a lot more commentary, really. Um, that would suit me down to the ground. Paul, I hope we see and hear a lot more of you over the years to come. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being so open. Uh, not a problem, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us. Well, there you go. The open and honest thoughts of, is it fair to call him a Spice Boy? I don't know. Thank you very much, though, to Paul O'Neill. If you want to find out more about him, you can find him on Instagram, owie29, O-W-Y-29, or Paul O'Neill, with two L's, 29, on Twitter. I'm Bryn Lucas. This is It's All About Me. Thanks for listening.